Hello, and welcome to a special episode of a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Jessica Davis, and I'm your guest host for today's chat with Amarnath Amersingham and Mark andre Argentino about the QAnon conspiracy theory and its implications for national security. Let me start by introducing our guests. Marc-André Argentino is a PhD candidate in the Individualized Program at Concordia University. His research examines how extremist groups leverage technology to create propaganda, recruit members to ideological causes, inspire acts of violence, and impact democratic institutions. Fair to say that you specialize in QAnon, Marc-André? Very fair to say. And Amarnath Amersingham is an assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, and he's cross-appointed to the political science department. His research interests are in radicalization, terrorism, diaspora politics, post-war reconstruction, and the sociology of religion. Marc-André and Amar are co-authors of the new article, The QAnon Conspiracy Theory, A Security Threat in the Making, in the CTC Sentinel. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So let me start with the tough question. Marc-André, what is QAnon? So QAnon is a conspiracy theory, and specifically it's what, I guess, academically we'd call a super conspiracy in the sense that it's multiple conspiracy theories that are organized in a hierarchy. But they're all centered around the QAnon central narrative, which is a deep state cabal of satanic, pedophile, global elites are responsible for all the evil in the world, and they believe that those same elites are seeking to bring down President Trump, who was elected with the help of a group of military intelligence officials. And QAnon believers see Donald Trump and Q team as the only hope in saving the world from the deep state. That is the central <laughs> tenet of QAnon. That's, that's quite something. So it's easy to see QAnon beliefs or as incomprehensible or crazy, are they? At, at the surface, it can be interpreted as crazy. I think a lot of people would see it that way. However, as Omar tells me regularly, I do have an unhealthy relationship with QAnon, and I spend a lot of time within the community under different names. And it does start to make sense after a while because it's all centered around a specific concept, which is to explain the problem of evil. It's really that there is this global, large battle between the forces, the forces of good and evil, and QAnon is on the battle of, of the side of the light. And it's just a way to explain the problem of evil. And in the pandemic that we're in right now, it makes even more sense to people to get this very clear black and white answer to very difficult questions with QAnon offers. So once you're in the movement in the community as an insider, it makes a little more sense. And if I can it, add, I mean, I yeah, think um, I think a lot of, I mean, conspiracy theories in general, I think, are pretty much concerned with this problem of evil, right? They 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 want to explain why certain things happen as they do, um, and and there was in the beginning, I think, in some uh, some of the conspiracy literature, uh, a, a, a thrust towards dismissing a lot of these individuals as crazy. But I think when, when some of these polls started coming out, 50%, 40%, 60% of co certain countries believe in one or more conspiracy theories, I think it's important to not dismiss these individuals and lure hundreds of thousands of people in a particular country as suffering from some sort of delusion. Because I think, um, as Marc-Andre said, I think once you enter a particular worldview, it's actually hyper-rational within that worldview. And, and so this is what sociologists call like, uh, bounded rationality. Within bounds, if you accept a certain, a certain premises that they believe in, everything follows quite logically. 
But the question is, do you believe in those premises, in which obviously most people don't? But it, I think it's important to not dismiss hundreds of thousands of people as suffering from some sort of delusion, because I don't think that's, that's quite accurate. Oh, that's really even in the Canadian content. So just yeah. to give like, context to our Canadian friends and families. Carlton released a study a month ago, a month and a half ago. One in four Canadians believe at least in one conspiracy theory. That's 25% of our population. And 10% believe in a COVID-19 conspiracy theory. So we're still talking about millions of people who believe in some type of conspiracy theory. So it is very common. I want to come back to the idea of conspiracy theories in a minute and how they're important in the national security space. But Amar, I wanted to return to you for a second. Because something that you said really made me wonder about how your background fits into your understanding of this. So as a religious studies scholar... How does that help you make sense of this type of sort of belief system? Yeah, I think I've been writing about conspiracy theories since I think 2011, when I got invited to write something on view of the Antichrist, right? And so there was this um, crazy rumor and quite heavily pushed on the internet that Barack Obama was actually the literal Antichrist on earth. Before him, Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton was dismissed as the Antichrist and, and so on. So I think for me, I've always been interested in why people believe crazy things and often why that kind of can tip them over into violence or whether it tips them over into violence. And I, I got really into studying why people believe in these kinds of things. And I think what's interesting to me is this, from a sociological perspective, this notion of social trust becomes hugely important because I think we all live under systems of expertise where if most of what we know in the world comes from elsewhere, it comes from other people, comes from other people's expertise, uh, whether it's historians or scientists or engineers, we don't personally know all of these things by ourselves. And, and that's fundamentally important for and functioning of for the healthy functioning of a society that you believe in these expert systems that when a doctor says wear a mask or, or a historian says the Holocaust happened because of X, Y, Z reasons that you trust the system of expertise in order to uh, know what you know or you think what you know. And what conspiracies theories do is they dismantle that in very strong ways. And so they basically say everything that you think is actually a well-placed uh, plot by evildoers, a group of evildoers who are plotting to keep the wool over your eyes. And it, it's on the face of it, it's quite easy to dismiss as a bunch of crazy people on the internet or a small group of fringe lunatics believing whatever you want. But I think fundamentally, it goes to the heart of uh, a healthy functioning society. If, if you don't trust the avenues of knowledge and systems of expertise, you're less likely to vote. You're less likely to trust government. You're less likely to believe that the FBI or individuals within the FBI or the RCMP are, have, your, have Canada's best interests at heart. It, actually, they're part of a secret plot. And, and it goes to the heart of a much deeper question in society of how do we actually function? Uh, how, do we, how do all of us have a baseline of understanding of what's true and how do we act on that uh, for the benefit of society? And so that's how I have always thought about the notion of conspiracy. And so when people are like, these are just a bunch of fringe lunatics, sure, but what does that actually mean for how they behave in society? And what is the impact of, all, of believing that in the QAnon case, that a kind of secret child sex trafficking ring is being run out of the basement of a pizza shop. That's not something, if all of us thought that to be true, there would be a mass uprising and rightfully so, a moral uprising to say, we have to stop this. Whereas, so it does invite certain kinds of behavior and, and has an impact in society, which I think we need to think more deeply about, especially as fringe ideas become increasingly mainstream. 
And we're actually starting to see a fair bit of that, first of all, mainstreaming, but then also people taking action on these ideas. So in a lot of other conspiracy theories, I would say that we haven't necessarily seen maybe violent action based on them, but your paper presents a number of case studies in which that's exactly what's happened. So I'd like to turn to Marc-Andre first to give an overview of one of the cases that I know that you're particularly familiar with. So the Jessica Prim case is kind of the one that was the crux for Amara and I to actually start talking about QAnon. And I think the most important thing that I pulled out of her case before really going into it is everything that I'm just going to mention quickly, it actually happened in 19 days. That was her introduction to QAnon to offline action. So that process happened very quickly. So her her story summed up is that Jessica Prim is a woman who drove from Illinois to New York and her goal was to go to the USNS Mercy. Yeah, that's the one that was in New York. And she was believing to she was believing that A, the kids that were being held by the deep state or were liberated by the deep state were on that boat and she wanted to find evidence of that. And two, she wanted to kill Joe Biden because part of her mindset is she believed that, this is going to get crazy in a second, that she was the whore of Babylon and she was the coronavirus. And the only way that she would be free is if she killed Joe Biden. The case of Jessica Prim is interesting because at post her arrest, she was diagnosed with a brief psychosis. But above and beyond that, what's interesting is she initially came into contact with Kion. She was an exotic dancer. So one of her clients recommended to her the documentary called Fall of Cabal. And that's a QAnon documentary that was uh, created by a Dutch conspiracy theorist. And basically, you see early on in a, a Pizzagate investigation group, she started talking about the Fall Cabal video and interacting with that type of content. And few days later, she went from that private group onto her Facebook and started sharing content about Out of Shadows, another uh, QAnon documentary about child trafficking. And we see that her story unfolds over time as she posts more content. She started posting about American politics, which she never did. I went all the way back to her content in 2016. She never t- posted about Trump or Hillary. She never mentioned the election. I, she never posted about Pizzagate when it was happening on her content. It wasn't until April 2020 that she posted about politics, that she posted about religion, she posted about conspiracy theories. And it showed that she was new to the movement. She wasn't aware of the history of QAnon or some of the older content. It was really about content related to the coronavirus, child trafficking. And she was in this state where she really believed that Trump was talking to her through the TV and telling her to do these things. So there is an element of it of having access to the secret knowledge where she's being awakened to these powers. And ultimately the bunch of traumas that she's had in her past life and the type of content she was in that interacting with, with QAnon led her to decide that she had to leave her children at home and drive from Illinois to take these type of actions because it's what Donald Trump was telling her to do. And it's what she needed to do as the coronavirus and the fault and the whore of Babylon, basically. So you see this entire worldview that this woman constructed around her led her to offline actions. Now, ultimately, she only was arrested for a minor drug possession and weapons charges, but it really shows how QAnon can radicalize someone very quickly. And a month later, there was another case, which we didn't mention in our article, but it was called Alphalus Lyman, and he radicalized in five days after watching Fall Cabal and was arrested after driving 110 miles an hour in New Hampshire with his five kids and his wife in the car, where his wife ultimately jumped out of the vehicle while he was driving. 
So it's the same type of content, the same type of narratives where these videos, and for him, it was the radio that was speaking to him and telling him what to do. And he's getting these coded and secret messages because you can't say it out loud because the deep state is going to be aware. So there, this type of secret knowledge and secret communication that leading one to action is what's motivating these people to violence. Now, we're lucky, I think, that it's been very small elements of crime that have happened in these two cases. But I think one of the concerns is that this is probably going to keep happening and it may get worse if it falls upon the right person because we've seen in the past six months that QAnon has been mainstreamed into popular culture and has gained a lot more followers on social media. And that is a bit, is a bit of a concern based on the research that Amar and I have done in this. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I look at that sort of radicalization to mobilization to violence process and being 19 or five days, and that's super fast. I've done a lot of work on this in other contexts, and that speed of radicalization and mobilization is very rare. So Amar, I was wondering if you could actually share some insights from the case studies that you looked at. Uh, is this, is the, the PIM case really abnormal, or do, do some of these trends hold in the case studies that you looked at? I think the Prim case is a little bit unique in, in the speed aspect, but I think it t- touches on what, what we briefly touched on earlier, which is not all conspiracy theories are going to mobilize to violence. And that's one thing to keep in mind here, <clears throat> that if you believe, for example, that the moon landing was faked or that the CIA killed JFK and Martin Luther King, if you believe in that Jeffrey Epstein was murdered in prison, not all of them kind of strike at the moral core of an individual to do something. Whereas something like uh, QAnon particularly the kind of child trafficking aspect of it, naturally brings about a sense of moral urgency and moral call to action, which I think some people could push some people over into violence. And so I think that's, that's what we're seeing here in, in, in some of these cases. That, And they, I, I think, and Mark andre can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think they also see a kind of closing window with Trump, whereas Trump is in power, he might be out of power, and therefore certain revelations need to happen before he leaves from the political scene. And therefore, there's a kind of urgency, a kind of closing door that they need to um, rush to fill so that certain certain revelations or whatever can happen before he leaves office. And, and so I think that's that th- those two things, I think, are part of what's causing some of this tip over into violence. I haven't seen, I was trying to rack my brain this morning, because I know I was talking to you of, of what other conspiracy theories resulted in five or six cases of violence. And I, I had a very hard time <laughs> coming up with anything that mobilized people to this much violence. And, and even things like the Illuminati, the Freemasonry, moon landing, whatever it might be, never really activated people to into acts of violence. And so I think that, that there's a kind of unique element here with the with the components of that make up this conspiracy that I think are, are quite dangerous. So in advance of this conversation, I solicited a call on Twitter for some questions for you guys. What I ended up getting were some criticisms of your work that suggest that you don't really understand QAnon, haven't analyzed primary source material, that kind of thing. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about some of your research methods and how you're generating knowledge and understanding in this space. So maybe we'll start with Marc-Andre on that. So I'm... I love it when QAnon, and I know these are QAnon followers that have asked this, they think that researchers will just try to criticize them about reading the content. But I know QAnon lore probably better than most of them. And my methodology is, I guess I call it digital anthropology in the sense where I embed myself in the groups and 
when you're there, I'm in their Telegram chats, I'm in their Twitter DM groups, I'm in their Facebook groups and the Facebook Messenger groups. I'm on the platforms and I'm seeing them interact and they're engaging what they're talking about, the debates they're having. And I've read every single drop from Q. I've been, I've been studying this since mid-2018 when the first set of attacks that were attributed to someone from QAnon, I'm like, huh, okay, this piqued my interest and I've been following it ever since. So I'm quite familiar with the content, but not only from that perspective, I add you know, metrics. I do a combination of qualitative and quantitative. So I mean, my research is in religious studies, engineering, and computer science. So I look at you know, the, the qualitative side, but then I'm like, okay, what does what can we do for topic modeling? What are the subjects they do? How are the links that they share connected? What are the metrics and the growth? And I'm, I could see what triggers the community. I know how they're shared and I've seen all the content and it's really interesting to see how they react and change the specific thing. And like Amar was saying, it's really, the really core of it is really type of this, this harm towards children is one of the cruxes that they have. And it's fascinating to see this play out, but it's also fascinating to see, I know we're talking about the violence side, but there's also individuals that have just decided Know, to run for office on a QAnon campaign. And though it's like that, that online to offline mobilization, it's not violent, but the people have decided to campaign to get elected to then help Donald Trump fight the deep state. So that's a different type of mobilization that we're seeing with this movement. And I think that's quite fascinating in the sense that people are willing to go through these processes that are tedious, though nonviolent, to achieve their goal. And that is is something that, again, I don't think we've seen before. You're not going to see anyone run for office on a, they fake the moon landing platform. <laughs> it's really something that's, that's interesting to see. And that I think is another element to say that individuals in here in QAnon are not just passive consumers of the drops, but they're also content creators. You don't have to be an influencer, but the regular individual is going to take that content, consume it, and maybe they'll make a meme. Maybe they'll make their own thread analyzing the stuff. They're going to take their own, the other conspiracies that are tied with QAnon. If you believe in like extraterrestrials or in the reptilian overlords that control the earth, you're going to take that lens and then apply it to QAnon and expand it as well and create a different narrative for yourself. So that type of, you know, that type of content creation is quite fascinating as well as when we're now we're seeing them protest and show up at you know rallies and this this is very different type of behavior but i follow q very close and omar says it's a little unhealthy at times but it's I mean, the that, one way that you could understand them it, it is quite unique because most conspiracy theories and i'm going to say most but i think i can i can probably say all are anti-authoritarian right they believe in uh, a kind of secret cabal of evildoers, usually rich, usually Jews, who are secretly in control and secretly organizing the kind of patterns that we see in society. Whereas this one, sure, there's a lack of trust and kind of there's a level of anti-authoritarianism, but they are actually trying to work within the system in interesting ways to either because they feel like Trump is their kind of ally that they can turn to or, or whatever reason. But that is fundamentally unique, I think, of of QAnon compared to a whole host of other conspiracy theories. Absolutely. I also want to give our listeners a bit of a sense of the origins geographically of QAnon and its current reach. So could you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I think it's common knowledge now that it originates in the United States, but how global is it? And what about Canada? It is a, it is now a global movement. I'm currently like before even getting on the, the podcast that I've been separating QAnon data from domestic USA to international, and I have QAnon in 54 countries right now. So that is a very, that, that's a lot more than I thought that I would have reached actually. And there's some interesting places like 
Moldova and Mauritius and Israel, Honduras. There's these countries that kind of stand out as that it's it's interesting to see them move there. So there is a, a movement that is transnational. Uh, Canada is very much a bastion for QAnon that is growing right now. And we have two QAnon communities where we have QAnon Quebec and QAnon Canada, as is with everything else. I'd say for QAnon Quebec, it's probably the interesting for one for me because it's our connection to Europe, where QAnon Quebec content is translated into Spanish and Italian, as well as found in QAnon France and QAnon Belgium. So we see a very interesting bridge going there towards the type of content they have. And there's some, there's a, one YouTube channel from Quebec that has 100,000 followers right now. It's an interesting thing. In Canada, we have a good amount of influencers. There's Agent Margaritaville that was recently reported on by Vice, who's on the run from the law for intimidating a witness. But we also have Amazing Polly, who's one of the leading influencers in QAnon and also a woman leading in QAnon. And it's very interesting to see the influence that she has. She was the one that initially posted about the Wayfair conspiracy theory that went viral a few weeks ago. She had posted that initially in June and it was picked up again after the teens on TikTok discovered Pizzagate four years down the road and brought it back to the forefront. We saw individuals fall on that and it just spiraled out and we're a growing community. There's about on Facebook, almost 100,000 members in QAnon Canada groups. That doesn't count Canadians that are probably in other groups. So it's still a growing number of individuals. And it's quite interesting, especially when it was Vice that reported last fall in the election. We even had one candidate in Cape Breton for the PPC who was a QAnon candidate who had a YouTube channel where he was decoding Q drops and spreading his conspiracy theory. So that is quite fascinating. I mean, when Marc-Andre first mentioned that there's a presence of QAnon outside of the United States, I was, what the hell are you talking about? This is very Trump-based. This is very kind of American in flavor. But of course, uh, if you think about it a little bit, it makes perfect sense because every wherever you have politicians who are accused of being corrupt and secretive and you see kind of these things flare up, right? And so you, and, and QAnon is, the fun, is like the quintessential anti-corruption movement and now they have a kind of online community uh, online brotherhood sisterhood where which, which they can push this movement along where they're fighting corruption they're fighting the deep state they're fighting kind of secret cabals of networks that are at play but i, I admit to being fundamentally confused about how a trump related movement could end up in moldova but there you have it What's interesting is like canada was featured in some of the earlier drops about qAnon the uranium 1 scandal was portrayed by QAnon as a way that the Trudeau family was used by the Clintons to smuggle out a bunch of money as like this deep state cashy organization to get rid of funds. And also within the Pizzagate child trafficking element, there was a huge campaign in 2015, 2016, 2017 that's still going around now about Edogate, where Trudeau Foundation documents were linked to an FBI document about symbols of pedophilia. And apparently some of the branding on that Trudeau Foundation document from 2015 was linking to specific pedophilia symbols. And the, he's like that type of content is regularly brought up in QAnon channels and groups as a way of linking it. So we do feature quite regularly. And it's also, it's hard to not share these things with with the way that our cultures interact with each other on a regular basis as well. I want to pick up on something that both of you have alluded to when you're describing QAnon, and it's 
that gender component. So you've both talked about some of the women that are involved in this. How common is it for women to be actively involved in conspiracy theories? And then from, if we're going to compare QAnon to a terrorist organization or extremist movement, what does the gender component there look like? This is actually my next project is looking at gender in QAnon because it's, there's a dichotomy. One of the features of QAnon is about targeted harassment. If we think, think about Chrissy Teigen and Sarah Silverman, there are some of the regular targets that are harassed actively on social media by QAnon followers because they're on this list of nefarious individuals. On the flip side, we like the Dutch conspiracy theorists who created Falcabals, a woman. Liz Crokin, who had a central role in Out of Shadows documentary, is a woman. Amazing Polly is a woman. And there's just a lot of female actors within this movement that are prominent and play a leadership role. And I think it's important to note that QAnon is generally an accepting community. It doesn't really matter your gender or your race. It is very diverse versus some of the more you think of like more traditional blood libel, Illuminati, Freemason type conspiracy theories that are usually white male dominant. This is a very interesting space. And it's something that I think needs to be explored because on the one hand, you have these influencers playing a role in the community. And on the other hand, there's an active role of harassment towards women in there. So it's fascinating. And especially when we're coming up to an election in November with a potential female vice president candidate on the opposing side to QAnon, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out in a type of harassment that may be perceived towards that candidate or even other female candidates on the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think what a lot of research shows about conspiracy theories, and I'm pretty sure it's applicable here, is is that there's a kind of homogeneity bias mixed with outgroup thinking. So in other words, it's your group, it's the in-group that is is given the privilege of diversity, is given the privilege of heterogeneity, whereas the out-group is fundamentally seen as one thing, is fundamentally seen as homogenous, and not only homogenous, but collectively evil and e- with evil intent. And you're seeing that a lot in the QAnon stuff where, where the kind of the other outside of typically Republican-minded individuals who are running for running for office are seen as collectively evil in, in in many ways, and that I think again when we're talking about social harms and antisocial behavior, I think that's fundamentally important to look at because one of the main findings of conspiracy research is that even within I think one of the studies showed, I think a few weeks of exposure to any conspiracy theory has an impact on fostering antisocial behavior of a variety of varying sorts. And this have long ranging consequences, I think, beyond just simply fringe ideas uh, and so on. And Marc-Andre, I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but there was a lot made of that QAnon connection during the recent Rideau Hall incident in which an individual tried to gain access to the prime minister's residence and was later arrested for making threats and a host of weapons charges. So do you believe that suspect was motivated by QAnon or what do you think the QAnon connection there was? It's based on the evidence we have right now. I don't think it was motivated by QAnon. It was so basically, as I had initially told Vice, it was a single Instagram post that had two pictures and a bunch of QAnon hashtags. And the specific hashtags used by the individual tell me that he actually watched Fall of Cabal because some of those hashtags were from like QAnon late 2018, early 2019. It's interesting that he probably fell onto that amongst other conspiracy theory content he was sharing because he shared stuff about extraterrestrials, about Event 201, which is a Bill Gates vaccine conspiracy theory. And it just shows that he probably, with the pandemic, 
he was going to go to lose his business. He had a bunch of other insecurities around. He probably fell onto specific social media landscapes that had conspiracy theories, and it probably provide a worldview to explain some of the issues he was going through. But above and beyond providing a lens by which to perceive the world, I don't think it's what necessarily motivated him to action. There's so much more that was happening in this individual's life that could explain his behavior that I think jumping to the you know QAnon rampage type title is trendy and you'll get a lot of views on your article but i don't think it's fairly representative of what happened based on the evidence and until the RCMP and the investigation goes through and we could find information from the courts i think it's irresponsible to jump to any more conclusions than that because then you're you're probably blowing things out of proportion and maybe making things worse than what they should be. And I think it's better just to be safe right now and see what happens when evidence comes out. I think that touches on a very important point, right? Is that uh, conspiracy theories have been shown, at least in a few instances, and particularly when we're looking at the jihadist space, to act as a kind of radicalization multiplier. In other words, as you enter the ideology, as you're thinking about other grievances as you're struggling with other issues in your life, this kind of feeds into some sort of acceleration of all of those things. And it, and it comes in to explain explain the chaos, make sense of the chaos, give you someone to blame for the chaos, and, and give you a, a kind of explanatory satisfaction there. And, and so whether this individual is suffering from, struggling from a post-COVID fallout, losing his job, business, whatever it might be, it, it might, the, the kind of QAnon might have helped explain some of those things. That doesn't mean he's a QAnon member or that he was a activist of some kind, but I think that's how, that's one way to think about it. And it's also important to see how um, this kind of points to how people deal with this, what's known as the proportionality bias, which is that when big things happen to you or when big things happen in society, we like to believe that they have big explanations and that, that JFK, the president of the United States, isn't killed by just some random guy with a gun, that it's actually part of a much larger conspiracy and so on. And so that when big things happen, like a global pandemic or the Beirut explosion is a good example, it's very hard for human beings to then be like, oh, that was just an accident. That just happened randomly. Uh, we crave more kind of proportional explanation, proportional context for big events to happen. And, and for this individual who, was, uh, struck, who had his entire life basically torn apart by COVID and, and, and the fallout of COVID, it might have been very satisfactory not to just be like, oh, this, this, this is just a random series of events that happened to me and now I'm struggling to cope. Whereas I think some of, some of these conspiracies provide a, a bit more uh, emotionally satisfying explanation for what, what occurred. When we're thinking about QAnon and specifically in the Canadian context, I think it's important to think about it as a, as a security threat, as I think you guys make very clear in your article. But how should we really be thinking about QAnon? Is it a terrorist organization? Is it a terrorist movement? Um, sort of what's the best way to categorize that? Because we need categories, really, uh, in terms of being able to respond to the threat. I think, like I did in the article, I borrowed from the recent report CSIS release and using ideologically motivated violent extremism as a language. Because QAnon is not purely a political ideology. It has resonance with a religious ideology. It's not necessarily a quote-unquote religion, but you see the behavioral impacts on individuals that have that. And ultimately, QAnon is a movement and a belief that inspires individuals to radical actions, and sometimes those actions may be violent. I think having that type of framework provided by the IMVE language is a way to look at them 
proportionally and be able to categorize the spectrum of QAnon believers from the least threatening to the potentially most threatening. I think that's a proper way to look at it without, because it's not an organization where you could just stamp terrorists, but it is a movement, like we conclude in our article, that could lead to potential security threats within a domestic context. And I think that's important. And then I just want to finish up here. Really, Amar, my question here is for you, is how should law enforcement and security services be responding to this threat? I think we've, you and Marc-Andre have laid out a very compelling argument that this is a national security threat. So what should our counterterrorism and security services and law enforcement services be doing about this? Yeah, that's a tricky one because I, I don't think that CSIS and RCMP or the FBI for that matter needs to be doing what Mark Andre is doing and, and live on Twitter DMs waiting for something to pop off. I, but I do think that they need to be aware from a training perspective at the very least to understand some of these fringe beliefs because they are uh, starting to have an impact on society. They're starting to mobilize individuals, not just queuing on, but a whole host of things, whether it's, you know, COVID conspiracies, whether it's uh, militia movements, whether whatever it might be, that at least from a training perspective, they need to be aware that what they typically considered probably to be fringe and insignificant online belief systems are actually motivating offline behavior some of that might result in violence. Other times it might result in a whole host of other antisocial behavior, which is not necessarily a law enforcement concern, but, it's not, but, it, but, it, but it is a concern, whether it's not voting or not vaccinating your children or whatever it might be. I think that it is impacting offline behavior in important ways. And I think more of us need to be aware of, I hate to say this because they're fundamentally crazy and fringe ideas, but the more and more that they have impact in the real world and the more and more people try to mainstream these ideas, I think we need to be aware of it just for general public health issues. Yeah, and I definitely see some elements that do remind me of broader terrorist movements. I think the thing that concerns me the most here is that there are elements here that are going to be resistant to our usual counterterrorism tools. So you can't list QAnon as a terrorist group in Canada. That's not going to work. You're not going to be able to tackle its financing. So there are some real policy challenges in this space. Maybe the counterterrorism lens isn't the most appropriate, but we need to get ahead of thinking about that now before it becomes much more of an issue. From a counterterrorism perspective, one thing that could happen with platforms now taking action is if you deplatform QAnon, you're going to be forced to places, let's say like Telegram, where there is an existing European QAnon community, but there is a growing overlap between QAnon on Telegram with more far right white nationalist neo-Nazi groups. And that cross-pollination might fall into a more traditional counter-terrorism space in the long run, which may be of concern. In the short term, I think because we're in a pandemic, we should really start maybe treating this more into the public health type context and education type space and raising awareness about the need for vaccines, the needs for wearing masks, but also how to verify and find proper information about this, even if it comes to interpreting scientific studies properly and not taking them out of context, which happens a lot with conspiracy theory. So maybe more of a either counter-narrative or media literacy approach to the current environment would be more effective while keeping in mind that long-term a counter-terrorism toolkit might be more important. Yeah, and I think the some of the COVID conspiracies are, are to some extent a good parallel because they're not necessarily a terrorist threat, but you have had people 
drive up to individuals who are installing 5G towers and harass them. You have individuals walking into emergency rooms demanding to see COVID patients, that kind of thing. And so it's not great. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something we can identify as pro-social activism. I think it does have impact, but I don't know if law enforcement and CT is necessarily the the only framework that's important here. I think what if it ever gets to that or if some individuals are tipping over into that kind of violence, sure. But I think the broader kind of diversion, early intervention, intervention space, I think is more important here. That's super useful. Thank you both so much for explaining to us what QAnon is and why it matters to Canada. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having Thank us. You.